sermon series, uh, this new sermon series that we're heading into. It's the, it is the month of November, as Danny pointed out, and Thanksgiving is just around the corner. So we like to take this time to talk about things around thankfulness, around uh, stewardship, generosity, some of these ideas. And so we're starting this three-week sermon series, this three-week teaching series called Abundance, and it's about generosity. Now I'm going to stop right there because I know what you're already thinking. Great. This pastor is going to talk to me about my money, and that's not what we're going to do. What I want to do, because our culture is obsessed with money, I actually want to place how we live and how we are generous with some of our resources, how we are generous with our resources in the context of God's wider goal and purpose for us, for our lives. So, yeah, we're talking about generosity, but we're not only talking about our resources, although certainly our resources are part of that but we're gonna talk about the way, the way of life that Jesus invites us into. And it's a life of radical abundance and radical generosity. And the way that we're going to do that today is we're actually going to do that by going way back to the beginning of the Bible. Way back to the beginning where we hear about how God created the world. And that's going to unlock for us some of what we are going to learn later from Jesus in the next two weeks. So we're going all the way back to the beginning to hear about how God has designed and created our world. So we're going to be talking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3 this morning. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And these chapters are vitally important if we are going to understand God's purpose for our lives, if we're going to understand what his goal and his mission in the world is. It unlocks so much for us about Jesus' ministry, about his own, about his teachings. And so it's really important for us to get Genesis 1, 2, and 3 right. So we're going to go all the way back there, and we're going to start there. And today... We're starting right at the end of the creation account, which is found in verses 26 through 28 of Genesis chapter 1. And this is what we find. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So this is the last thing that God creates. The last thing that God creates is humankind. And Genesis chapter 1 is this amazing work. Um, and the way that God has designed how he's created our world and how he tells us how he creates our world, it's really amazing. There are two sets of three actions that happen. So this is for those of you who get really interested in this. If you're bored by this, you can, you can zone out for a little bit. But in Genesis chapter 1, God does three, two sets of three things. The first thing that he does is he pulls apart the sky and everything that's underneath. So it's called the heavens and the earth. He separates them into two different spheres, two different areas. And then he takes the water that's covering the earth and he pulls it up so that dry land appears underneath. So in the first three days, he creates what's up there, he creates the land, and he creates the seas, the water, lakes and rivers and all those things. He sets up these three different areas in our world. The skies, the land, and the water. And then in the second set of three things that he does, the next three days, he fills them full with wonderful things. He makes plants appear on the dry land. He fills the air with all kinds of birds. He fills the water with all kinds of fish. He fills the land with all kinds of animals. And it says that it's the, the world is teeming with life. It's overflowing with life. 
There's vegetation and there's animals and there's all this stuff, all these living creatures that have God's breath in it, all this good stuff that's filling the air, the land, and the sea. And then the last thing he creates is humans. And he says, let us make humankind in our image. And what does he do for them? He gives them dominion. That word means responsibility. He gives them responsibility over these three areas. Over all the animals, over the fish of the sea, that's the water, over the birds of the air, that's the skies, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So he sets humans in his world, in his image. He gives them a special, unique role that we can have a special relationship with him where we have this intelligence, this conscience intelligence, that we can know him and love him, that we can love others. And he sets us in there for to have responsibility over everything, over this whole world that's just teeming full of life. And then we have these next two verses that kind of repeat a little bit, but we'll jump in a little bit further. Genesis 1.27 then says, So God created humankind in this image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is a nice little, uh, this is like a, a poetry couplet is what we call this. This was probably uh, when this was written and uh, this was given to us by the Holy Spirit, given to the Israelites by the Holy Spirit. They probably made this into a song. So in your Bibles, it's probably set aside like it's a little bit like a song or a poem standalone. That's because probably the Israelites used this passage as a hymn early on. And we move forward into verse 28. God blessed them, that is the humans, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So in this final action, God blesses the humans and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Make lots of babies. Fill the earth with little humans. Go forth and make so many humans, the earth is full of humans. Now, God actually did this same action to all the animals. Earlier on, he blesses the animals and he says the same thing. Be fruitful and multiply. Go make lots of babies. Grow your population. Multiply and fill the earth. Now, to humans, he gives this unique role of subduing the earth and having dominion over the earth. So in this first image of creation, we have a God who creates, who fills, and then he blesses his creation, and he says, multiply, make more of you. This first image that we get of this world is a world that is chock full of life. And then he says, go make more. Make more life. Let there be more life out there that you create as you mate and have children and their children have children and their children and children have children, go out and fill the earth. This world that God creates is a world of absolute abundance. There's enough to go around. He tells the man and the woman, you can have every vegetable, you can have every fruit of every tree, you can have whatever you want, except for one, right? If you go to Sunday school, you know, there's one that they weren't allowed to eat, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But other than that, he says, it's all yours. Have at it. Enjoy it. And this word is really interesting, this word subdue. Now, the word subdue and the word dominion in, in 2021, those words maybe have a little bit, it's a little bit forceful, right? 
when we talk about subduing someone, that's usually not a positive thing. Uh, same thing with dominion. If you dominate somebody or have dominion over somebody, we don't usually use that as a positive word. Um, and this is a little bit of a challenge with translation. These are just words that they make, they, we have slight variations. They change over time. So subdue and dominion are not negative words in this sense, but they simply mean responsibility. That the humans are responsible for the earth. And this word subdue is really interesting because it actually means like to organize, to organize the earth. And so think about it this way. If uh, my wife and kids, they, we spend a lot of time outside, and so they like to go out and they like to hike and do all those kinds of things and go on walks out in nature. And something that they got really into this summer was foraging. So as they go out, they find a berry, berry patch and they're like, great, you know, if they know what kind of berry it is, they'll collect some berries, they'll eat them, they'll have a good time. Same thing with apples. They would find some apple trees, some wild apple trees, and they would just pick a whole bunch of apples or pick them up off the ground. Or they would find uh, edible mushrooms out there in the forest. They would pluck these mushrooms and bring them home and we'd cook them up and eat them. They liked to forage this summer. And the big thing was apples. That was what they really, they collected a lot, a lot of apples. Now, if you ever picked an apple from a wild apple tree, you know something about those apples, right? They're not very big. You know, they're only, they're only little. And oftentimes they're not super healthy, right? Kind of got some brown spots. Maybe some bugs have eaten them. And so when we have these apples from these apple trees that we find out in nature, oftentimes we have to cut out certain parts and do, do that kind of thing. We kind of have to like make sure that they're edible for us, right? But if someone has an orchard, even if it's a small orchard, and they take these same kinds of apple trees and they plant them in rows and they make sure that they are watered well enough, that they're spaced out enough, they make sure they come and they pick out the bugs before the bugs can eat the apples, or they spray them with what they need to to make sure the bugs don't get it. What happens to those apples? They get big, right? They get big and they're healthy. That's subduing the earth. Wild corn does not yield very much food, does it? But when farmers take corn, they take these seeds and they plant them in rows and they water them the way that they're supposed to, what happens? The yields are incredible, aren't they? That's subduing the earth. It's ordering and organizing the earth. And what we know as humans is that as we order and we organize these things, what we find is that the world produces more than we ever thought it could. That even this year in the Sauk Valley, where we had this drought at the end of the summer, our farmers went out and they picked their corn and guess what they found? Really good yields. Even in the midst of a, of a drought, most of our farmers in the area had good yields in their fields. And so what we see here is we actually see the benefit of what happens when we subdue and take responsibility over the earth. That over the decades, God has ordained and inspired people to think about and scientists to problem solve in order for us just to get just the right strains of seed so that when we plant that corn seed in the ground, when a drought comes, it doesn't die, does it? That it's hardy enough to survive even bad weather. That's subduing the earth. That's participating in organizing the earth. And so this year, even in the midst of a drought, our farmers were able to pluck really good corn and were able to get it out to the livestock and to us who need it. They were able to feed the world out of this crop that was raised in a drought. That's the Lord ordaining and showing us just how abundant 
our world is. Our world is increasingly and amazingly abundant. About 250 years ago, uh, they estimate there might have been 600 million to 1 billion people on the face of the earth. Okay? So we're going to say, we're going we're gonna to go the lower end of that. 600 million people. About 250 years ago, they estimate that's how many people there were. There were some scientists in England who began seeing how many people were filling up England, and they were beginning to see how many people were filling up the world, and they were saying there's no way, there's no way the earth can sustain all this life. There's no way we're going to have enough food. There's going to be a mass extinction of humans, and lots of people are going to die out, and we're going to get reset back to just a few million, which is really how much the world should be able to hold. That was 250 years ago. Do you know how many people live in the world today? Seven billion people. They were off. Those scientists were off by a lot, right? The world can actually feed a lot more people than we thought. And here in the United States, it's estimated that we throw away enough food to feed the entire human population for one year. That's what it's estimated. We throw enough calories away in our trash can to give enough calories to the entire human race for a year. The world has plenty for us, doesn't it? This is the world that God has created. That even in our sin and in our greed, even in all the horrible things that we do to misuse and abuse each other and the earth, still God's good earth continues to produce for us. It continues to give to us. This world that God created is exceedingly abundant, far more abundant than we can ever imagine. Scientists today are estimating our world can only hold about 10 billion people. And I'm guessing when we hit that 10 billion mark, we're going to find out that they're wrong too. I imagine that we'll find new ways. I imagine that we'll find new ways to subdue the earth to feed our population. This world seems to have a never-ending goodness for us because God has created in such a way that life always wins. This world that God has created for us, this is the world that Adam and Eve were set into. This is the world that humans were set into. And they lived in this abundance because they did the same thing. They had a garden, right? They subdued, they ordered the ground, and they ordered the plants. They had a garden. And so these humans were placed in this abundant world, but then something happens in Genesis chapter 3. And this is the story of the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God. And if you went to Sunday school, you know the story of Genesis chapter 3, but this is when the enemy comes in the form of a serpent, and this is when the enemy tempts Adam and Eve, and they sin against God. So let's jump into that story, just one verse of that story. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal, that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, so we have this world that's abundant that God places Adam and Eve, the human, the first humans into. The enemy comes up to him and his first question is a lie. Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Of course, we know that God said you can eat of every tree except for one. So until this moment, Eve, Adam and Eve, had no idea. They had no reason to ever think there wasn't going to be enough food. 
They had no reason to ever think there wasn't going to be enough for them. And here the serpent comes and he poses this question that he knows is a lie. And Eve, at first, she identifies it as a lie. But he poses the question this way. Did God really say, did God say, you shall not eat of any tree? So until this point, Eve had no reason to think there wasn't going to be enough. And by asking this question, the enemy plants in her mind the possibility of there not being enough. Until then, she had no reason to ever imagine a world where God did not give her food. And here, the enemy plants the idea in her head of a world where God does not give food. He actually plants this idea of scarcity in her mind where there's no reason for her to have ever thought of it before. He poses the question to create in her mind the possibility. What would a world be like if God didn't give us anything to eat? It'd be terrible, wouldn't it? It would be death is what it would be. And so now in this moment, scarcity, the idea of scarcity, is placed in Eve's mind for the first time. And this is how the enemy tempts her. Because then he offers her the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he says, no, 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 it's actually good for you. It's going to make you like God. He plants scarcity in her mind about food and then transfers it over to knowledge, to being like God. And so now Eve has this possibility of God not giving her what she needs. She has this possibility of scarcity. And to this day, I think that scarcity is what drives much of our fear and much of our sin. Because we are afraid of not being cared for the way that we want to be. We are afraid of others having more power and more money, more resources than us. We are afraid of the other political team having more power. We operate now out of a mindset of scarcity. There's not enough, so I had better get mine now. There's not enough, so I had better be greedy and lie, cheat, and steal my way to the top. There's not enough, so I had better make sure I gobble up all the power no matter how I get there. The idea of scarcity drives us today, and it creates fear in us. And so now we're always afraid. We're always afraid of the scarcity of our cultural norms. We're afraid of the scarcity of our political power. We're afraid of the scarcity of our money and our resources. We're afraid of the scarcity of the love of our spouse or our own love. We are driven by fear, so we become selfish, hoarding our lives, hoarding what we think we ought to have, hoarding what is ours because we're afraid of losing it. We become afraid and insecure because of this idea of scarcity. It drives us even to this day, this fear of scarcity. What we're going to find over the next three weeks is the kind of life in the kingdom that Jesus invites us into is a life in a kingdom of abundance. It's the opposite of scarcity. And what we see is that Jesus actually offers us a release of fear, a release of insecurity. He offers us a release of this scarcity by transforming our minds, by renewing our minds, and by giving us the promises of the gospel. Because in God's kingdom and with God, there is no scarcity. God's forgiveness is not scarce. He always has more forgiveness to offer you. God's grace is not scarce. 
He always has more blessings to give you. God's joy is not scarce. He always has more joy to give you. In fact, even in Galatians 5, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and all the like. He uses that language, the fruit, just like creation. It's exploding with life. The kingdom of God is exploding with life. There's always enough. There's more than enough. More and more people can come in, and there's always more to give. God's forgiveness is not scarce. God's forgiveness is not little. It's big, and it's abundant, and it's offered to us in Jesus Christ. And when God placed Jesus into the belly of Mary, when the Son of Man took on flesh and became like one of us, he created for us this new reality, this new abundance. And now he gives us his Holy Spirit to experience all the love, joy, peace, patience, and all the others, way more than we could ever imagine, way more than we could ever even hope for. We now have it in Jesus Christ as a free gift given to us just simply because that's how God likes it. He likes abundance. He likes bigness. He likes it when things are overflowing, full of joy and full of pleasure, full of happiness. So the next couple weeks when we look at Jesus' teaching, this is the life that we are invited to. A life of abundance where we get to kill our scarcity, we get to kill our fear, and we get to walk in the promises of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Well, Father, I'm so grateful that you have invited us into a life of abundance. Lord, thank you that this abundance transcends anything that we could ever hope or imagine. Lord, I pray that you would be with us now and give us your peace at this time, that we may know you, that we may love you. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would speak these words of abundance to us, that you would speak these words of hope and joy to us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we lift up to you uh, all the various prayer requests that we have this morning. For the COVID-19 crisis, Lord, we pray that you would continue to do the work of healing our nation and our, um, our community, our nation, and our world, Lord, um, that you would continue to help us find a way out of this crisis. Uh, Lord, we pray for those who are sick. We pray for the medical professionals. Lord, those who have been financially impacted. Lord, those who have their mental health impacted by uh, this uh, dramatic event. Um, Lord, we pray that you would heal them, that you would bless them. Um, the Lord, that they would know you and love you, that they'd be transformed by you. So, Lord, heal our community, heal our nation, heal um, our world from this disease. Lord, we pray that you would continue to make the vaccine safe and effective, Lord, that we can, um, Lord, that we can beat this thing uh, by your power. We lift up to you Dessa Caravan in her rehab, Ernie Little in his cancer, Frida Lass in her rehab, Mark Sandrock in his ALS, Kathy Shoemaker in her cancer, we lift up to you, O oh Lord, and we ask grace for the D'Souza family for the passing of Jediel, the Nelson family for the passing of Shirley, the Dirks family for the passing of Donna. We ask you, Lord, that you'd be with these individuals and with their families, Lord, that you'd bring healing to those who are sick and you would bring peace and grace to those who are mourning. We thank you, Lord, for Joe Dunbar that he is healed from COVID-19. And we lift up to you, Sandy Scrogstad, as she is adjusting to a new home. We lift up to you, Dave Wagner and his back surgery, Randy Strickland and his back surgery, Rick Curley and his health, Margaret Schneiderbauer and her health, Jane Jacoby and her health, Marilyn Hart and her health, Jerry Heeren as he continues to recover from surgery, Phyllis Slothauer as she recovers from a broken hip and surgery. And we lift up to you Pat Wagner and her family as she enters into hospice. We ask you, Lord, that you be with all these individuals, that you would heal them and that you would give them grace at this time. 
Um, Lord, please give peace at the end of life um, and, uh, and give them hope in the resurrection. And finally, Lord, we lift up to you thanks and praise for the birth of Braxton Wayne to Alan Nicole Lewis. We thank you for the health of Braxton and the health of Nicole. We ask you, Lord, that you would uh, bless Alan Nicole to raise Braxton as a man of God. We pray, Lord, that you would give him your Holy Spirit, that he would know and love you, um, and that he would, uh, Lord, that he would grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and humans. And finally, Lord, we lift up thanks and praise for the birth of Coralie to Pastor Ben and Ashley. We ask you, Lord, uh, that you would bless this young lady, that you would give her your Holy Spirit, that you would grow her in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and others. Please continue to be with Ashley as she heals um, from, that, uh, uh, from giving birth, Lord, and uh, be with their family as they adjust to this new little one. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Into your hands, O Lord, we commend all for whom we pray, trusting in your mercy, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.